This is the Serious Sita Podcast, Episode 13, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Sita episode 13. Now you're probably used to a different sort of introduction to the show, but today we're going to change it up just a little bit because basically Serious Sita will be changing just a little bit starting from the next episode. The way it all turns out basically is that the first 13 episodes of Serious Sita, Serious Sita, were part of a class that I was giving online back in the middle part of 2013 but towards the beginning of ramadan the class ended and we broke during the month of ramadan and for situations and circumstances i really don't care to get into right now we did not complete the class after ramadan so we basically had met my initial goal which was to finish the first part of the seerah which is the prophet's life from his birth up until the hijrah we did finish that by ramadan but the plan was to break for ramadan of 2013 and then come back after that and complete the seerah from the hijrah to the prophet's death after ramadan but that didn't happen and so i only have the first 13 classes uh recorded here which included which include basically everything up till now which you are about to hear today so starting from next week or the next episode for you really starting from the next episode of Sirius Sita Sirius Sita episode number 14 the classes will well the episodes that you will hear will actually be recorded in my home studio and not in a class so I won't be speaking to a bunch of students there won't be anyone asking questions it will just be me speaking and there's good and perhaps some bad to that also the good thing is that because i don't have the time constraints of a regular class period where i had to be finished by within an hour where i had to make sure i covered enough points within an hour i can elaborate and go into many different topics as i please because it's my studio and on my time I can go as long or as deep or get as detailed as I, as I think I need to go. The downside, of course, is that this may lead to overly long episodes. Maybe things might get a little more confusing. I hope not. I've been podcasting for a while. I think I know how to keep things on point. Inshallah, Allah knows best about that. But still, there may be some negative aspects to me now doing this basically speaking to you directly into your ears instead of you hearing a recording of a class. Either way, inshallah, I think it will still be beneficial. I think you will still benefit from it. And I think it will still be a good program. And in fact, I think the the good of it will actually outweigh the bad. And I ask Allah for guidance in all things. So this podcast, this episode of Serious Sita will focus on the prophet's migration his actual in the last episode we actually talked about his migration the trip itself from um, mecca to medina with abu bakr or anhu and we spoke about the dangers he the dangers they faced while they're making the trip in this episode we're going to speak about the beginning of the establishment of mecca the building of the first masjids how the the new muslims and the prophet uh began to or the new arrivals into Medina and how the Prophet and the Ansar, the residents of Medina, how they began to interact in the beginning. 
And we'll just, that's basically what this episode is really about. And inshallah, you'll find that hopefully very interesting and informative. Next episode after this, inshallah, we'll get more into detail about the establishment of Medina and the building animosity between the Prophet, the Prophet, his companions, and the, um, between the Prophet and his companions and the hypocrites, the Jews, and of course, the Quraysh of Mecca. And then, of course, we'll get into the battles. So, inshallah, just be patient with me as we go through this little change here. I believe, ultimately, though, that you will like the new change, inshallah, and you'll find it all very good. And may Allah bless you and reward you for your patience with me. May he forgive me for any mistakes I may make. So, before we cut this off and get into the actual program, just want to ask you a few favors, really just one favor, and give you a couple of... uh, you know, maybe some advice you might need. First favor is if you have an iTunes account, then if you would like to support Sirius Cedar, if you'd like to keep this podcast going, go into your iTunes account, make sure you're signed in and leave a rating and review for Sirius Cedar. All you have to do is type in Sirius Cedar or just my name, Mutaki Ismail. It will come up one way or the other and leave a five star rating and review for the podcast this helps with apple's algorithm or itunes algorithm and so when people look for islamic programs or cedar programs this will push you closer to the top and hopefully get us more viewers not viewers this isn't a television show this is actually a podcast so well more listeners i should say also if you are interested in more uh podcasts more islamic podcasts you may or may not know this but I also host two other podcasts. Inshallah, will soon be three. But right now, there are two other podcasts which you can find in wherever you found Sirius Cedo. You can also find these other two podcasts. You can find my main podcast is Becoming a Better Muslim. That's my main podcast. You can find that on iTunes or you can find that with the uh, with his main website, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash podcast. It will take you to the Becoming a Better Muslim podcast, and you can go from there. Or if you want something a little bit different, we also have another podcast called Romantic Muslim. That's a fairly new podcast. Only, uh, Well, it's only two episodes, but by the time you hear this, it'll probably, probably be three. But that's a podcast I, I collaborate on with another brother. But if you want to listen to that one, that's mostly about relationships, Muslims and relationships, uh, family, marriages and stuff like that called Romantic Muslim. You can find that on iTunes, Stitcher, BlackBerry, Windows, wherever you found this one, Sirius Cedar, you can find Romantic Muslim also. Or just go to RomanticMuslim.com and you'll find it there. So, um, and by the way, if you're wondering, Becoming a Better Muslim, that podcast is mostly about applying Islam to our modern lives. How do we apply our Islam to our modern lives in order to improve our lives? You'll also there's also a lot of tafsir on that. We go into the tafsir of certain surahs, and there's a lot of good things in there. Inshallah, it's a kind of a hodgepodge of things, but the main focus is using Islam to better our lives. That's what becoming a better Muslim is is really about. And because that's more of a personal one, that's the flagship podcast. And then you got, we also have serious serious Sira as well as romantic Muslim. So. Take your pick, inshallah, join them all, uh, listen to them all, and those you like, stick with it. Those you don't, well, discard them, keep on moving. Alhamdulillah, hopefully you will find them all beneficial, inshallah. And these are all part of the Ilm Network, which is this Islamic, this network of Islamic podcasts that we have going on here. And last two things, just in case you are wondering, or if you ever wanted to learn how to speak Arabic, 
I would I want to offer you a suggestion. You can go to cedar.us slash Arabic. That is cedar.us. That's the main website for this podcast. S-E-E-R-A-H dot U-S slash Arabic, A-R-A-B-I-C. That will forward you to a page for Pimsleur. Pimsleur is a language learning program, and I used it also a couple of years ago. I use it as well, and it's very good for learning conversational Arabic. Now, it's not going to help you learn how to read or speak Quranic Arabic, but it will help you speak modern conversational Arabic very well. I, I used it. I was very successful with it. And alhamdulillah, if you want to learn how to speak Arabic as well, I would suggest you do that. So just go to sira.us slash Arabic. And that will forward you to, to our Pimsleur, and you can check that out. And, of course, if you do sign up, they give um, uh, Sirius Cedar, the podcast, a, a slight, you know, a little cut in the check. So it doesn't cost you anything extra whether you do it or don't. Whether you do it through Sirius Cedar or do it on your own, the cost is still the same. But if you do want to learn how to, how to speak Arabic, then I would suggest you try this program. And, inshallah, it will also help Sirius Cedar as well. Another thing, if you are a sister and you need some Islamic clothing, I get a lot of. Um, I know a lot of new Muslims listen to this program. If you are a sister and you need some Islamic clothing, you don't know where to go. Try uh, my Batua. I'll give you. There's an easy way to get to this. Just once again, go to cedar.us s e e r a h dot u s slash jilbab j i l b a b. So cedar.us slash jilbab. I will for, forward you to an Islamic clothing company based here in the United States called My Batua. And you'll find a whole bunch of um, Islamic clothing for women of all sizes. And I, I don't think there's anything that you need that you can't find there. And once again, this will also, they also support um, Islamic learning materials, the Elm Network and Sirius Cedar. So if you do buy something from there, they send on a small portion of that to me, and that helps to keep the program moving along, inshallah. So it helps you and helps me, helps the company. Everyone benefits, alhamdulillah. All right, so we're going to stop it here, and inshallah, we're going to get into the program, Sirius Sita, episode number 13. Having said that, also, the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers, because in the this ummah of yours is one ummah, and I am your Lord, so worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims, the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one ummah and they were a magnificent brotherhood. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, na'hmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'aghfiru wa nu'minu bihi wa natawakulu alayhi wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. When we left last week, we had just finished speaking about the Prophet's migration to Medina, how he had allowed everyone else from amongst his followers in Mecca to make the Hijrah before him. And then he stayed behind with Abu Bakr and they made the very treacherous and dangerous journey from Mecca to Medina together, taking refuge in a cave and nearly escaping death on several occasions. When the Prophet Muhammad and Abu Bakr arrived or began to get closer to Medina, he sent Abu Bakr up ahead before him 
And there was a Jewish man up in a tree looking out as the people were expecting Prophet Muhammad to come. And they saw the two men approaching. And he called out to the Arabs, the man you've been waiting for is coming. And the people of Medina, they had been anticipating the Prophet's arrival. They were very eager to see him. Most of the Ansar, the inhabitants of Medina, from amongst the Aus and Khazraj, most of them have never seen the Prophet before. Only those who had actually made the the Hijrah, the, the Hajj, the two previous seasons, the two previous, year, previous years had actually seen him, those who, who had made the first and second pledge of Al-Aqabah. But everyone else in Medina had not seen him, so they were eager to meet him and see this man whom everyone had been speaking of for so long. And this man whom they followed, basically. They are very eager to see him. You can imagine if you yourself had the opportunity to see Prophet Muhammad, how how anxious and how much would you be anticipating the moment when you could finally lay your eyes upon him. So they were also eagerly awaiting to see him. And as he came into the city of Medina, there are stories of the different songs that they sang, and some of the songs are very popular. And there has been some dispute about whether the song Tola al Badru Alayna is actually authentic, whether it was actually sung or not. And Allah knows best if it was actually sung or not. But certainly the people did sing upon his arrival. And whether they sang that song or another song is somewhat irrelevant. The fact is the people of Medina were very happy to see him. If you're not familiar with that song, Tola al Badru Alayna, you can find it, inshallah, on YouTube. Very easy to find. Tola al Badru Alayna. And I'm sure someone can find a link for it and play it up here. It's a very popular song. There's no music to it. It's just singing. Well, people probably put music to it now. But initially, there was no music to it, just singing. And this was just an indication of how happy the people were that Prophet Muhammad had come to them and had made the dangerous, had made it safely across the desert of Arabia in the dangerous journey from Mecca to Medina. And when he arrived in Medina, of course, everyone wanted the honor of the Prophet sitting, staying with them because it would take him some time to establish his own residence. And everyone, all of the Ansars, even though they were not wealthy themselves, they were anxious and eager to get the Prophet وسلم, to sit, spend some time with them or to stay in their house. And everyone would ask him, come, come with us and stay with us and stay with me. But he couldn't choose between so many people. And so instead, and this is a famous story, he allowed his camel to make the choice. Or as he said, this camel is commanded by Allah, and wherever it stops, that will be where I stay. And so he got off the camel and let it go, and the camel began to wander through the streets of Medina and eventually settled on a spot and knelt down. And this spot happened to be owned by a couple of orphans, two young boys whose parents had died early in their life. And this spot was where the Prophet's masjid would be built. And that became that spot where the masjid of Allah, where the masjid of, masjid of Rasulullah, masjid al-Nabi was built. And is there to this day, even now in Medina. 
Of course, it's much, much bigger and more grand now than it was back then. But nonetheless, you can imagine all of the rewards these two young orphans would have had for giving up their land for all these years, over 1,400 years of Muslims, including some of the most eminent Muslims of all time, the Prophet and his companions praying there. You can imagine all the heaps of rewards those two young orphans would have received. This is probably one of the, perhaps the best investments someone could have ever made. And so these two young boys now, they gave up their land, and that became the spot for the future site of the Prophet's masjid. But beyond that, though, the Prophet still needed a place to stay. And as we mentioned in the last class, he did have some family ties to the people of Medina. Because, in fact, his mother's family was from that area. And so he decided to stay with some members from his mother's family, a man named Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. And he stayed there with him until his own residence was completely set up and completely ready. There were still a few people left in Mecca, and it took them some time to make their way to Medina. So a few days later, his wife, Sauda, uh, who was who he married just after the death of Khadija and before his marriage to Aisha radiallahu anhum, his wife Sauda came, and then his two daughters, Fatima and Umm Kulthum, his adopted son at the time, Usama ibn Zayd, and several other people of his household, and also from Abu Bakr's household because his family was also behind, including Aisha, his daughter, Abdullah, and Um Ayman, who was his wife. The Prophet's daughter Zainab, however, was not able to make the the pilgrimage, the hijrah to Medina, as her husband had not yet accepted Islam. At the time, however, the prohibition of Muslim women marrying non-Muslim men was not fully in place, and so she was not forced to divorce him or separate from him at that time. Ali, however, he stayed behind in Mecca and finalized a few deals and a few debts and outstanding payments that Prophet Muhammad owed to people in Mecca. And it's really amazing that these same people who just a few weeks earlier were trying to kill him, he still wanted to settle his debt with them. That shows you the honor that and nobility that Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had. And even people who wanted his blood, he still wanted to make sure that his debt was settled with them and that he owed them no money. It takes a special character to do that. I'm certain most of us, if we owed money to somebody and then they betrayed us, I'm certain most of us would not even bother. We would, we would consider it a write-off. Like, well, you just gave up your right to whatever I owed you. But the Prophet of Allah was something different. I mean, he was a different person. So he still wanted to pay off his debt to those people he, whom he owed. And so he left Ali behind in Mecca to take care of that business for him. And eventually Ali made it back to Medina also. Now, life in Mecca, sorry, life in Medina was different than life in Mecca. The Muslims were now in a foreign land, and it was a land that was based primarily on agriculture, whereas in Mecca, the Quraysh and the other people of Mecca, they made their money mostly from commercialism. We mentioned how they were the middlemen between 
the two commercial centers of Yemen and Syria to the south and to the north, respectively. And the Quraysh acted as a middleman, basically buying from one and selling to the other, depending on the season. Medina was different. They mostly made their money or made their living through agriculture. There are many stories of the Jews in Medina who owned large tracts of land that were full of orchards, date palm orchards and other fruits and bananas and others. Well, not bananas, but definitely date palms and other fruits. And the other and the Arab uh, people of Medina, the Aus and Khazar primarily, they were also primarily agriculturalists, farmers, small-time farmers, no huge plantations. But Medina was more prone to rain. It had more rain and more floods than Mecca did. And while it may not have been much to us living in lands where it rains frequently, for the people of Mecca to suddenly come from to go from one area where it hardly ever rained at all to another area where it rained pretty frequently and where water was fairly reasonably available compared to Mecca. It was still desert, but not compared to Mecca. Many of them began to get sick and suffered different types of sicknesses, just dealing with a higher humidity. With more humidity comes more mosquitoes and other insects and other bugs that can come along with it. So in the early years, the Muhajirun suffered from trying to become acclimated to the climate in Medina. And for the first couple of years, they actually, many of them were, I want to say did not like being in Medina, but they were homesick. For one, they lost their home. You know, they're probably tired of getting sick all the time. They had to get used to a slightly different culture. It was still ancient Arab culture, but the people of Medina had a slightly different culture than the people of Mecca. It was said that, the, for one thing, the women of Mecca were much more docile than the women of Medina. And we can see why. The women of Medina were used to warfare. I mean, the people of Medina were used to warfare. They were used to going to war you know, against each other frequently. And so when you see this in most societies, when you have a society where warfare is much more common, and death is more frequent and women tend to have to take over more of the roles of more of the workload that men would normally take, especially in agricultural societies where women have to take part in the farming just as much as men do. You tend to see women being a little more uh, opinionated, less docile, less giving or less, I won't say giving, but you no know, less um, weak than you will in other societies. Whereas in Mecca, the women there, especially those in the higher classes, you know, with the exception of a few like Khadija and others, and even Khadija, while she was she became wealthy through trade, she didn't actually do the trade herself. She had intermediaries. She had men do that stuff for her. She didn't actually participate in the trade in and of itself. That's of course how she met Prophet Muhammad in the first place. But the women of Medina didn't really have to participate in the actual work of doing the trade, they were pretty much stayed at home and raised kids and listened to their listened to their husbands. And so the women of of Mecca were much more docile and had a much more submissive attitude than the women of Medina. The women of Medina were wives and mothers of warriors. They were just the attitude was just totally different. When you are marrying and giving birth to warriors over and over and over again, your attitude is going to be different. 
you're just not going to be as submissive as women who are wives and mothers of merchants. It's just a different, just a different attitude. And so the, the Muhajidun initially complained about how rough and how unsubmissive the women of Medina were initially. But for most of them, many of the other Muhajidun wound up marrying women from Medina anyway. It was just, it was just inevitably going to happen. Prophet Muhammad Wasallam also began to create a brotherhood between the Muhajidun and the Ansar, where the Muhajidun, especially those who had left all of their wealth in, in Mecca, were paired with one of the Ansars, kind of like a buddy system to help them get used to living in Medina and help them become acclimated to the society. We'll speak about more when we get into the second part of the class, inshallah, which by that I mean when we get into the details of the of life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi after, after the hijrah. Another thing about Medina that was not that was not uh, prevalent in Mecca were the large tribes of Jews or large Jewish tribes who lived in Medina. These tribes had most likely come to Medina during the Jewish diaspora, which occurred many centuries before, many, many centuries before. Just after the time of Isa, salam, there was a rebellion in Palestine of the Jews or Hebrews or Israelites, however you want to call them, <clears throat> against the ruling Roman Empire. And it was a pretty staunch rebellion. They lasted for many, many years, the rebellion, this rebellion of Jews against the Romans. Eventually, however, the, the Romans, who were pagans at the time, managed to snuff out and wipe out all of the rebels and all the rebellions. But, and they even destroyed the second temple of Solomon, of Prophet Suleiman, salam. When the Romans quelled the rebellion, they decided that the best way to deal with the Jews would be to get rid of them and keep them from being consolidated in one spot. And so they began to ship the Jews and basically kick them out of Palestine and send them to all over all over parts of to many different parts of the Roman Empire and even outside the Roman Empire just so long as it, as they didn't stay in Palestine. Doesn't mean that every single Jew left Palestine, but the vast majority of them did. And that is why you have Jews in Medina and also why Many years later, we have Jews in Europe because this was a Roman Empire taking people from Jew, taking Jews from the from Palestine after their rebellion and expelling them and sending them throughout their throughout the empire. And so some settled in what we now know of as Germany and Austria and Italy and France and Spain and even England. And even in Morocco, you'll find some you'll find Jewish communities in Morocco and North Africa and Egypt. And as we mentioned, some settled in Medina also. And this was as a, this was this is basically the Jewish diaspora initiated by the Roman Empire. And that's why you have Jews all throughout these different parts of the world right now It is mostly because of that. And some of them, of course, settled in Medina. And this was centuries before the prophet of Allah was born, Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. So by the time he was born, those few Jews who had settled in Medina had established three, really many, many smaller tribes, but three 
large tribes. And these were the primary tribes of Medina, and they were fairly powerful in Medina politics. But and they will become they will play a much larger role as we go into the story of the prophet of the prophet's life after the Hijra. But the Jews did have they were able to corner the market in Medina, especially when it comes to agriculture. Like I said, they owned large portions of land that where they had large um orchards. And they were very powerful in comparison for such a small population in compared to the overall large Arab population, they held a disproportionate amount of power. But that will come later on. There were still some people of Medina who did not accept Islam, some Arabs who did not accept Islam. <clears throat> the Jews, of course, did not initially. Uh, most of them did not. A few did, but most of the Jews did not accept Islam. There were a few people of Medina, Arabs of Medina, who remained mushrikun, who remained uh, pagans, polytheists. <clears throat> so Prophet Muhammad did not kick them out. They weren't forced to accept Islam or anything like that. But over time, though, most of those, by the fifth year, all of all of the Arabs in Medina had accepted Islam. Whether they did it willingly or unwillingly, well, whether they did it sincerely or insincerely is another concern. Because another thing in Medina that the Muslims had to concern themselves with, which they had not necessarily had to worry about before, was a problem of hypocrisy. There were many Arabs in Medina who were not so happy about Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu coming to Medina. They weren't out there singing songs and singing Al-Bada and all that when he came. There were many of them who did not like his arrival, who resented his coming, and who were upset that he had suddenly, this outsider had suddenly gained all this power. Primarily amongst them was a man named Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, who just before the Aus and the Khazraj had made their peace and were making their trips to to Mecca for the Hajj. Just before they had began to accept Islam, he was on the verge of uniting the Aus and Khazraj under him as a king of Medina, basically. They were tired of the fighting amongst themselves. And before they met the Prophet of Allah, they were going to make this man Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, their leader, their king, over both tribes to help quell all of the fighting that was going on between them. And so Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, he was just really on the verge of becoming the ruler of Medina. And he was probably, just, he could probably just, just feel the crown on his head and taste the power between his teeth. And then all of a sudden, this new upstart this man from Mecca, this outsider who wasn't even from Medina, all of a sudden he comes here saying that he's a prophet of Allah and he just usurps everything from him. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was quite upset about the prophet Muhammad Sallallahu coming to coming to Medina. He was, like I said, was not singing songs, was not throwing flowers or anything like that. But he was also in a minority. And he was a politician. He didn't become, he didn't almost become the king of Medina by being an introvert. He didn't almost become the king of Medina by simply twiddling his thumbs and waiting for things to happen. He was a person who was cunning. He was deceptive. 
He knew how to work the system in his favor, and he knew when it was best to open his mouth and when it was best to keep quiet. And he knew that it was best to make it appear as if he was on the side of the Muslims. And so he withheld his disagreement within his heart, though, of course, it came out on many occasions. And he was known to everyone as chief hypocrite. And he had a quite a large, quite a large following, by the way. There are many other people who agreed with him or who were on his side for one reason or the other. So he had quite a large, a large following. But him primarily, he kept his disagreements with Prophet Muhammad He kept his his hypocrisy hidden. This was something that the Prophet of Allah and the Muslims did not have to encounter in Mecca. There was no reason to pretend to be Muslim in Mecca. You were either Muslim or not Muslim because being Muslim really brought a world of hurt <laughs> in your way. So if you're going to accept Islam in Mecca, you really must believe it. So there was no reason to hide anything. I mean, there were they were uh, an oppressed minority. So the Muhajirun who made the pilgrimage, who made the migration from Mecca to Medina, were all sincere Muslims, and they knew everyone in their group was sincere and committed to the cause. But now in Medina, a lot of people like Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, they accepted Islam out of convenience because it was the, the prudent thing to do. It was a convenient thing to do and the wise thing to do, given that most of the city has suddenly accepted Islam. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was an example, one of these early, early hypocrites. And his role will come alive more as we go through the history in Medina, inshallah. The three tribes in the city of Yathrib, which was now named Medina to Nabi, or the city of the Prophet, short shortened to just Medina, were the Banu, Banu Kainuka, Banu Nadir, and Banu Qurayza. They both had different allies with different uh, um, Arab tribes in Medina. The Banu Kainuka were allies of, of the Khazraj, and the Banu Nadir and Banu Qurayza were allies of the Aus. And sometimes the the Jewish tribes would use this to their advantage. Sometimes they'd be used as intermediaries. Sometimes they'd be used as like diplomats to try to negotiate agreements between the two tribes. But they did have their own different allies. I mean, they had been living together for centuries. Uh, the Arabs and the Jews, they've been living together in Medina for centuries. So they had to come to some sort of working agreement between the two of them. Now, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu he wanted to try to bring up, bring about some sort of agreement with the different groups. We already mentioned four different groups right now. You have the Muslims, which were actually divided into two different groups, the Muhajirun and the Ansar. And from amongst the Ansar, they were even further divided into the Aus and the Khazraj. But we'll put all the Muslims into one group. You also had the Arab pagans, who those who were inhabitants of Medina but did not accept Islam from both the Aus and the Khazraj. You had the hypocrites who were technically still Muslim, actually. They were still Muslim. However, they just were not committed to the cause, I guess a good way of putting it. Then you also had Al-Yahud, the Jews. Really, the, three, the two main groups that he was concerned about were the Muslims and 
al-Yahud. Those are two most powerful groups and the two who are most who are most prevalent and most visible, the Muslims and the Jews. And Rasulullah also was hoping and felt that the Jews would be more inclined to the Muslims because they were both monotheistic faiths. I mean, there was very... When you look at the Jew at the Jewish faith, there's not much difference between them and us. I mean, between Jews and Muslims, there really isn't much difference. I mean, Jews grow beards, Muslims grow. We we're talking about the uh, conservative type. We know all Jews don't grow beards, but traditionally, though, they grow beards. They wear little hats in their head. Also, the women cover their heads. They don't eat pork. They have a special way of slaughtering their animals. It's just like us. I mean, they um, the women tend to dress a little more. Uh, conservatively you know they only believe in, in one God they believe in Allah you know they don't believe Asa is a son of Allah or anything like that but yet despite all of these similarities there's still there's still massive hostility between Muslims and Jews some of it is political some of it is religious most of it is probably political right now based upon the events surrounding the nation we know of as Israel right now and what's happening with the Israelis and Palestinians. Much of it is political based upon that. But some of it is also doctrinal. The Jews do not accept that Isa salam was a messenger of Allah. They also don't accept that Prophet Muhammad was a messenger of Allah. And there are some quotes in the Quran that while they don't speak too badly of the Jews it it does point out some things about them that tells Muslims we have to be careful of not necessarily be careful of them but we have to be aware and understand where they're coming from as Allah says in the Quran and I don't have the quote in front of me but Allah says that the Jews and the pagans are the one who are most vitriolic and most hateful against Islam this is a, a broad category, a broad generalization. We shouldn't take it to mean every single Jew feels that way. Most certainly everyone does not. Just like on the opposite side, in the same sort of Allah says, the ones most inclined to love to us will be the Christian. Some of the strongest groups against Islam and Muslims are Christian groups. Some of the worst, actually some of the worst uh, atrocities committed against Muslims came at Christian armies or armies that consisted primarily of Christians. Whether you take that as the Crusades, which wrecked havoc in the Muslim lands in the, in the Middle Ages, or if you take the fact of the current war terrorism, which is primarily led by nations with majority Christian nations, and is supported by many people who claim to be Christians, and many of them have out, outright spoken spoken out right their hope and their their reason for supporting the quote unquote war against terrorism, which is mostly against Muslims. The reason for supporting it was to bring Christianity to the Muslim world. And so in those two events have probably led to more Muslim deaths than any other single event in the history, the Crusades and the current war, uh, which may be winding down now, Allah knows best, but the current war on terrorism have led to more Muslim deaths than perhaps any other event in history except for perhaps the Mongols. They probably killed more Muslims than the Christians did. <laughs> the Mongols, they killed a lot of Muslims. 
But other than that, though, those are some of the worst atrocities. So it's just to show that those verses in the Quran should be taken in a general perspective, in a general ideas, not specifically meaning to each and every single person within that group. And now the time came the Prophet Muhammad Hassan to begin to build the new society. One of the things he wanted to do was, as we, as I began to mention earlier, was to bring some sort of agreement between the different groups, primarily the Muslims and the Jews. And in which case he established something like a constitution in a way, but it's more like an agreement that no one would be forced to accept the other person's religion. So the Jews would not be forced to accept Islam. And the Jews weren't interested in forcing the Arabs or the Muslims to accept Islam anyway. So that was, it really wasn't a problem. But also that all groups would be responsible for the protection of Medina. That was to everyone's interest. Everyone should be interested and committed to the protection of the city, regardless of what the different religious beliefs were. And also that everyone would recognize that Prophet Muhammad was the authority, even though he would not force the Jews to accept Islam or force Islam upon them. The Jews had to recognize his authority in the land of Medina as the ruler of Medina. And everyone agreed to this. And those two primary things, of course, were protection of Medina and recognition of the prophet's authority as the ruler of Medina. But as the ruler, and given that Islam promotes freedom of religion, the prophet would not have enforced Islam upon the Jews. Even without this contract, he would not have done that. But the contract further, further solidified that. We'll see how later on, often the Jews will, different Jews will come to him, seeking him, asking him to arbitrate in their disagreements. And he would arbitrate based on their books, based on their beliefs, not based on the Quran. So that shows how, how willing he was to keep Islam from being forced upon them and to keep there from being any sort of misunderstanding that he was forcing the Jews to accept Islam. Even when they came to disagreements between the Jews, when they came to him, he would agree. He would mediate with them based upon their book and based upon their religion. We can imagine. We cannot even imagine something like that happening now. And thus began the beginning of the Meccan society. The Prophet had he had the beginning of Masjid Nabi being built. There was another massive built in a city just outside, a small suburb just outside of Medina. We can call it a suburb called Quba. He had a a new masjid being built out there. This was a temporary masjid, even though it stayed there. It was really the first masjid of Islam. Uh, before even It was built even before the Prophet's masjid was completed. This was built, and, this, and he stayed out there in Quba, as you mentioned, with his family until his home in Medina was completed. So he stayed with his family, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, until his um, his residence in Medina was completed. And in that, in that time, though, that first masjid in Masjid al-Quba was being built. And this, sisters and brothers who are listening to this afterwards, ends the first part of our class our class on the Sirah Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and we've just completed the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam from just before his birth to the just after the Hijrah 
We will pick up, inshallah, in a couple of weeks. I'll have to let you know, but it'll probably be, probably definitely be after Eid al-Fitr. It will begin with the establishment of, we'll, we'll complete the establishment of the city of Medina, the Prophet's authority in Medina. And this is where all the battles and all the action comes in, in Islam. And I'm, I'm not sure where you want to go after that, after we finish the life of Prophet Muhammad Sassam, because really the second class ends when the Prophet dies. And when Abu Bakr becomes elected as a Khalifa, if you want to continue on after that into the early caliphates between the four caliphs, I guess we can discuss that. But for now, uh, this class will probably end in another three months after we finish the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu after the Hijrah. As I mentioned, this is when all the battles begin. And these classes may take longer because I'll probably want to get into some of the details of the battle, of the different battles. There are lots of battles to speak of, many of them, in fact. So I guess it's up to you if you want to continue after the, after we complete the next three months. So we'll probably finish this, uh, we'll probably start in late late August, inshallah. Probably finish sometime in, sometime around November, inshallah. And so we can decide then if you want to continue on with the caliphate of the, of the first four caliphs of Islam, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali, and the beginning of the Umayyad, Umayyad dynasty, or if you want to go into a different topic completely. It will be up to you at that point, inshallah. But for now, inshallah, we're going to stop here. And the class will also stop until, I guess I'll have to wait until after, at least until after Sister Amira comes back from her trip. And Eid al-Fitr will probably be around the 9th or 10th of August. So I'll say the first earliest class will probably be the 21st of August. That's probably the first day that we can probably come back, inshallah. It will be the 21st of August. If anything earlier happens, in, if anything happens earlier than that, you know, we can let you know. I don't know. I mean, it's up to you guys. If y'all are going to start earlier, we can let, we can work on that, inshallah. But I guess we'll have to discuss this behind the scenes. Are there any questions about the hijrah or about the life of Prophet Muhammad so far? Or even about the upcoming classes that make that will come up soon in the next couple of weeks, inshallah. Okay. As the sister was saying, sister asked a question here about the why the women of Medina were different due to being wives of warriors. Well, if you look at most societies, consider the Mongols and maybe not the Romans, but the Mongols is a very good example. Most societies where there's a lot of warfare and where the women were involved in war, where maybe not the women were not involved in warfare, but the the nation or the people themselves were constantly involved in warfare. It just brought a necessary toughness to people. If you look at even um, in history where, say during World War II, during the time where European nations were being bombed consistently by each other, where the Germans were bombing the English and the English were bombing the, the German and everything, the people naturally became hardened. 
You know, you just become used to seeing death and seeing death on a consistent basis basically hardens your spirit and makes you tougher. And it really wipes out a lot of the softness that humans naturally have being involved in warfare consistently. And so, yeah, the women of Medina, they were, once again, wives and not just wives, but also mothers of warriors. And so young children had to learn how to fight, shoot arrows, perhaps even ride horses and camels in a warlike manner early on in their life. And very often, women would have to know how to do this stuff also. If the people were constantly fighting, it was just only natural. You just Warfare does not include just men. When nations go to war, everyone is involved in some way or another. Some way or another, everyone is involved in warfare, young and old, men and women. So even if the women did not directly take part, they would still be part of raising warriors. And if you are a woman and you are being married to somebody who's a warrior and he lets you know, I'm going to give birth or you're going to give birth to sons who will be warriors. So you have to treat them in a certain way. You have to train them a certain way. The women are just going to be prepared for that. It's just inevitable that everyone in the society would have this warlike and hardened mentality. And so the women of Medina, who once again, they should have seen their their men, whether it's their husbands or fathers or sons, being involved in warfare and being killed or killing others for decades and generations before that, they would have had to have had some sort of, some sort of hardened attitude. And they would not be so willing to just, you know, cow under a man simply because he can raise his voice or he may happen to be physically stronger than her. She would not be so willing to cow to a man and submit to him simply because he's afraid he may smack her. She's afraid he may smack her. She may be just willing to smack him right back or do something worse. And so it's just the mentality is there. If if women are warriors, women, they may not have been warriors themselves. I don't want to give the impression that they were fighting, but they were related to fighters. And they were raising fighters and married to fighters and daughters of fighters. So that that is just part of the that was just part of the upbringing. Whereas the women in Mecca, Mecca had not seen a war since the time of Prophet Muhammad when he was a child. There was a small civil war amongst the Arab tribes in Medina. I'm sorry, Mecca. There was a small civil war amongst Arab tribes in Mecca, and for but that was not a major conflict. And so there were some there was some fighting in Mecca, but once again, it was that was the only time. So you're talking about 50, at least 50 years, well, maybe at least 40 years, time had gone by in Mecca with no real warfare. If you really consider that war, and that, to me, when I read it, from the way I read it, was more like just a, a small civil strife between the different clans in, Medina, in our Mecca. It wasn't anything major because most of the prophet's uncles were alive. So if there's anything major, then they most many of them should have died. And there's I, I haven't found too many reports of many people being killed in this warfare or too much of the aftermath of that of that warfare in the time of Prophet Muhammad Hassan. So from my understanding, from what I can see, it seems as if that civil strife in the Prophet's childhood was very minor. Beyond that, the only other war before that was when Abraha and his army of elephants came to invade Mecca. 
And that was just before the Prophet Muhammad was born. So by the time he left for Medina, we're talking about 50 years later, most of the people who are alive back then who could remember that invasion were most likely dead by the time the Prophet made the Hijrah to, to Medina. So about a span of 50 years, half a century, most of the people would be dead during that time. And the few who were alive were old men if or women, if they could remember it at all. This was the year that Prophet Muhammad was born. So Mecca just wasn't involved in warfare. They had gone almost half a century without really being involved in any kind of warfare. The city was very wealthy from the success of the Meccan merchants. They had the, the Hajj pilgrimage, which brought in a whole lot of money in and of itself. And so they were really a class of aristocrat, aristocrats. I'd say aristocrats like the movie. They're a class of aristocrats in comparison to the rest of the Arabian Peninsula. They, they were wealthy. They didn't really have to worry about warfare. Their caravans were fairly protected because of their status in the Arabian Peninsula. And so they spent their time making money and <laughs> and parting, really. They just weren't ready for, you know, the people of Medina. When the warfare came, they just weren't ready for it. And which is why part of the reason why, of course, they suffered defeat the first couple of times. And the law knows best. Now, much of this is just my own understanding of it. But, you know, I'm fairly convinced the people of Mecca were nowhere near as skilled in warfare as people of Medina. And so saying the women may have needed to be strong for the children who may have questioned about what's going on at that time. Yeah, to see your, your father and older brothers and uncles going to warfare every couple of years. I'm pretty sure the children would have had to growing up in that area would have had to agree with, had to have been exposed to that and it definitely would have affected their upbringing also. And so by the time the Rasulullah came to to Medina and he had, and it was, was time for warfare, you see the the Meccans were, and I'm sorry, the, the Medina, the Medinans, the people of Medina were always ready to go to fight. There was no hesitancy amongst them. They didn't, and except for the hypocrites, of course, they didn't, falter they didn't bulk they're like so if you want you jump into the sea we're jumping in there after you and they were ready to fight head on sometimes they're a little bit too eager as we'll see in some of the upcoming battles inshallah but they were always ready to fight on the side of Prophet Muhammad so they had you know they were really fearless men you know the Medina, the people of Medina were fearless when it came to warfare so this was the mercy of Allah that he he brought the Muslims to the exact proper place which would which would be needed. It's something that was absolutely needed in the coming in the coming years. All right? If that's going to unless anyone has any other questions, I'm going to wrap it up here. Inshallah. No more questions. Alright. Subhanakalahuma wabihamdika nashadan la ilaha anta nastaka filuka wanatubi lake. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.